You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, how are we doing this morning? Exciting? Early, the 9 a.m.? I love it. I can just feel the excitement in the room right now. Well, happy late Christmas, early pre-New Year. That's right. We're right in the middle of two major holidays, which means that a lot of people are out of town today, which means that I get to preach today. It's great. I preached last year, January the 1st, 2012. Remember that? This year, December the 30th, and I'll be on next year, December the 29th, 2013. Went ahead and mark it on your calendar. Went ahead and mark it. So <laughs> it's the little things in life, really. It's family, it's friends, and it's that joke that just get you through, you know. It's just little things in life like that. So, well, all of us in a room like this come from unique backgrounds and diverse backgrounds. And all of us, if we were to pull a mic on stage and we were to allow you to come up and share your story about how you became a Christian and were converted into a Christian, I bet you all of our stories would sound very different. Some of us grew up in, in homes where we had Christian parents and we were saved at a young age, and some of us were not grown up like that and did not have Christian families or parents and were not saved at a young age and were saved later in life. And some of us, we went hard into rebellion and did a lot of wicked things before we were saved. And um, over the course of a room like this, I would bet you that our conversion stories and the events leading up to our conversion stories probably differ to a large degree, but amongst all of our conversion stories, there's certain things that are similar. There's certain things that we all have in common. And what Paul's about to do in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, is he's going to open up his inner life to us. He's going to open up his life and he's going to begin to rehash and reflect upon the nature of his conversion, but he's not just describing his story and his conversion. He's going to say in verse 15 that let those of us who are mature think these sort of ways, to think similarly about your conversion. So there's certain things that bind us and that are similar and that are, you, that are, that are true of all of our conversion stories, regardless of how different they may seem. And Paul's going to kind of open up and reflect upon his own conversion. And he's going to talk about three things. So we're going to shoot a three-pointer today. That's basketball terminology. If we're going to look at three things in the passage. We're going to look at Paul's life prior to Christ. Religious. Not Christian religious, Paul's life in Christ, righteous before God, and Paul's life through Christ, redeemed, religious, righteous, redeemed. And so that's what we're going to look at, and we'll start off in verse 1, just read one verse, verse by verse, verse at a time, and so let's look at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. This is great, great, great wisdom in Paul. He just hears about, we're going to talk about momentarily some of the things that were going on in Philippi. And he just kind of hears that there's sort of these false teachers going on. And he begins to hear, he's writing in prison right now. He hears of these false teachers that are going on. And instead of writing 
new innovative things to the church in Philippi. He says, I'm going to write things to you that you already know. I'm going to remind you of things that you already know. I'm not going to teach you new innovative truth. I'm just going to remind you of things that I've already taught, and it's no trouble to me, and it's good and safe for you. That's exactly what we're going to do this morning. In fact, if you've been at Stonegate for any number of time at all, what we're going to talk about this morning is not new innovative truth, because we don't need new innovative truth. We just need the gospel explained and applied over and over and over and over and over again, and I pray that when we teach and talk about the same sort of things that we don't lose our awe and appreciation for the gospel, but that our worship and love for the person and work of Jesus Christ continues to grow and grow and grow. There's always a risk in talking about the same things over and over again, that you'll lose your awe and appreciation for the person and work of Jesus. But we need to remind ourselves of who Jesus was, of all that he is for us, and all that he's accomplished for us on the cross. And and almost every, literally every time I sit down with someone who's struggling, or if I myself am struggling and am receiving counsel, almost every single time at the base root is just a forgetfulness of all that Jesus is and all that he's done. And Paul, in his wisdom, does not come to the church in Philippi and say, I'm going to teach you new innovative truth. He says, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. So I'm in student ministry a lot. And I, had a, uh, I have a certain group of sermon critics in the student ministry. They're junior hires. I don't know what to do with that. I'm like, I don't know if I care, but they tell me. And one, earlier this fall, a girl came up to me and said, Dan, it sounds like you teach the same message in a different way every single time. And I was like, I don't know if you're complimenting me or insulting me, but thank you. Because that's what we're trying to do here. We're just trying to teach the same great message from different angles in a clear, compelling way every single time. That's exactly what Paul does in this passage. So let's look at the next verse. We'll see the setting. Verse 2. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Let me give you some background as to what's happening in Philippi right now. Philip, Paul loves the church in Philippi. I don't know if you've read the book of Philippians. There's no doubt. You, he has a genuine love, a tenderness with the church in Philippi. He's got great relationships there. We know he spent a lot of time there. And right now he's in prison, and he hears that there's these guys. You've got to follow me here. There's these guys called Judaizers. These are Jewish Christians that came into Philippi. These were Pharisees converted into Christians. And these Pharisees converted into Christians, these Judaizers, these Jewish Christians, were coming into the church in Philippi, and they were teaching young Gentile believers that you're not only supposed to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, but you're also supposed to be circumcised as true, committed Christian believers. You're supposed to believe in Jesus, yes, but you're also supposed to be circumcised. It's Jesus plus something. That's called religion. Jesus plus something. And Paul hears that these Judaizers are coming into the church in Philippi and they're teaching not just a Jesus-only, Christ-centered, only Jesus message, but they're actually teaching Jesus plus circumcision. And so he calls, before he gets to anything, he just starts calling people names. I like it. Just starts calling people names. He says, look out for the dogs. 
I know we're in America right now, and you've got your little pets at home. And you love your little animals, and you let dogs come in and invade your house, and then you become immune to it. I know, in my home group, I am known as the guy who hates dogs. And listen, let me just explain myself here. Let me just explain it. Just because I don't want your dog sitting in my lap, <laughs> licking my skin, and in infiltrating its stench into my clothing, doesn't mean I hate dogs. Just means I don't want your dog on my lap. Just because you're immune to your dog's nastiness doesn't mean that I'm immune to it. It doesn't mean I hate dogs. It only means I hate dogs most of the time. But dogs is not a compliment here. Paul's not saying this is, you're cute. He's saying, and dogs in that day were wild, nasty creatures that were not potty trained, that ate garbage, that were gross. He's saying, your religion, your Jesus plus something, your Jesus plus, in this case, circumcision, is gross and disgusting. Then he says, your evildoers who mutilate the flesh. It's a clear reference to circumcision. And so what Paul is about to do here to these Jewish religious Christians that are adding to the gospel is he's about to one-up everybody in religion. He's about to say to these Judaizers, he's literally going to write out bullet point for bullet point his religious resume, and it is impressive. In fact, these Judaizers would have read this list that Paul's about to list out for us, and they would have been astonished at how religious Paul used to be. And Paul is doing this to try to help us see that religion is not the gospel. Religion is not gospel. And so he's basically going to say, you want to talk religion, I can talk religion. I used to be religious, but something happened to me, and I'm no longer religious anymore. So let's look at these one by one. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision, the real circumcision not outwardly circumcised, but inwardly circumcised in the heart where we now have an inward transformation, a genuine love for Jesus. We're the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he begins his list, verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day. That was exactly what the law of Moses commanded. The law of Moses said, boys should be circumcised on the eighth day. Paul, check, did it. Next, of the people of Israel. He was true Israelite. He wasn't a converted Jew. He was Jew in his race, in his heritage. He was a true Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. This is like the royal tribe. This is like the tribe in the Old Testament where all the kings came out of. This is, he's got royalty in his blood. He's a true Israelite. He's got royalty in his blood. It'd be like me saying, you know, that I'm a grandson of Ronald Reagan or something like that. This is just, in that day, it'd be like, wow, you're, you're, a tri- you're, a ben- you're not some obscure tribe. You're the tribe of Benjamin. Legit. A Hebrew of Hebrews. 
That means both mom and dad were 100% Hebrew. He wasn't half Hebrew and half something else. He was 100% Hebrew. And as to the law of Pharisee, so he starts, he starts off listing off all of his lineage. He's talking about his heritage. He's talking about his family lines. He's talking about his, his race. And then he gets to his parents. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he gets to his accomplishments. Starts talking about his accomplishments. And as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, I'm a Pharisee. You know what a Pharisee was? You know that the Pharisees were the closest theologically to Jesus Christ? And Jesus Christ spent more time hammering those guys, and they hated Jesus, and Jesus hated them, but they, the Pharisees loved the law. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are 613 laws that comprise the Mosaic law, and Pharisees not only knew every single, all 613 laws, They lived by those laws. In fact, they invented more laws to hold them accountable to keep those laws. I mean, these guys love the law. And Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees who was blameless. He knew all these laws and he kept them. And then it says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This is interesting. Paul was so, so, so staunch Pharisee religious that he persecuted the church. A lot of people, like you know Paul who used to be Saul of Tarsus and was converted? A lot of people think, I, I think wrongly, that Paul, when he was not converted, when he was Saul of Tarsus, was like a pagan who was like a terrorist or something. No, he was a Pharisee. He was theologically very close to the apostles and to the disciples. Minus the fact that the, not minus Jesus so let's, I want to go on a little bit of a journey here and try to understand more what exactly happened to Saul of Tarsus leading up to his conversion. And this is going to be a little bit nerdy, but it's, going to, it's really cool. And it's going, to help, it's going to help us understand how awesome verses 7 through 11 are. So we're going, to go on a, we're going on a little journey here. And I'll just tell you right now, just let me just preface. If you're a kingly, note-taker, systematician, just put your pen down for a couple of minutes. I'm just going to just spare you the frustration for the next five to ten minutes. <laughs> oh, So let's start in Acts chapter 6. Let's talk about Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Grew up Hebrew of Hebrews. Grew up Israelite. He understood the Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament. He probably had it all memorized. Probably had, he knew all the laws. He was a Pharisee. He grew up. He was, oh, here's what we know about Saul of Tarsus. He was intelligent. He was smart. He was competitive. He was passionate. He was legit. He was a Pharisee. He had a Jewish education. He was brilliant intellectually. And also what we know in other parts of the book of Acts is we know that Saul of Tarsus, his family, probably purchased a Roman citizenship into the to be a Roman citizen, which would then allow Paul to not only have a Jewish education, but also have a Greco-Roman education, which is really important. Because who was Paul's primary people that he was ministering to? Gentiles, who were, Gre- who were educated with Greco-Roman sort of education. So this Paul was a perfect candidate to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to Gentiles because he had both educations. He was an expert at both. He was super educated. This was highly unusual. 
in first century to have both a Jewish education and a Greco-Roman education. So Paul grows up very intellectual. He probably has people all in his childhood saying, you're great, Saul. You're great, Saul. You're gifted. You're intellectual. You're unusual. And then in Acts, a little pocket in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 5, a little cell of Christians begin to form right after Jesus Christ commissions the disciples. And this little group of Christians begin to speak out against the Pharisees, of which Saul was one of. And these little group, these, these disciples appointed a man, Stephen. Stephen, who started preaching openly and aggressively against Pharisees in Jerusalem. And so this is what it says about Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So here's, now you notice in that passage that Luke, the author of Acts, includes some really what seems like random details. Starts talking about other groups of people that were there, you know. And he references Cilicians, which is actually, here's where we get nerdy, time to get, time to get excited. This is actually the synagogue that Saul belonged to. And he actually, Stephen belonged to that synagogue, and so did Saul. And Stephen was now a converted Christian, and Saul of Tarsus, who was probably, if not definitely, there, was right there listening to Stephen preach against the Pharisees, preach the Old Testament, and how the Old Testament ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And you Pharisees, if you're just looking at the Old Testament, and you're just looking at the laws, but you don't see Jesus Christ, you've missed everything. You're a stiff-necked group of people. And Saul is sitting there listening to Stephen, and if Saul was there, I'm going to bet you, I'm just going to speculate that it was probably Saul, we don't know this for sure, but it was probably, it might have been Saul who debated with Stephen, who was part of that dispute. And then we know, let's just connect New Testaments here, New Testament passages, later in Romans 7, when Paul is reflecting upon the commandment that gave him the most trouble, it was the commandment, thou shalt not covet. And I bet what happened on this day is Saul of Tarsus found somebody, ran into somebody who was filled with the very Spirit of God, and Saul of Tarsus could not, he could not hold a debate to Stephen full of the Spirit of God. And I think that ignited rage hatred, conceit, rivalry, envy, and covetousness in, the, in Saul of Tarsus. So he fills with rage towards the church. All of his life, he was legit. He was the guy that people went to for wisdom. And now there's these little Christians that are not only speaking out towards his Phariseeism, but they're also publicly humiliating him. And he can't hold them, he can't hold them in a debate. You got this epic debate Stephen and Saul of Tarsus, and Saul cannot even hold Stephen. It'd be like Valentine and I entering into the octagon. (laughs) I would dominate him. (laughs) Acts chapter 7, 
they capture Stephen and they, they cast him out of the city, verse 58, and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of the execution stoning of Stephen. And then later in Acts chapter 9, rage, anger towards the church, towards the apostles, towards these men that outdo him in arguments, who call out his religion in rage. Acts chapter 9, let's look at verses 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for Jesus to the synagogues, for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men were traveling with him, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, nothing. so they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And on that day, all of Paul's accomplishments and all of his education and all of his family lineage and all of his religion and all of his outward moral good deeds, all of the glory that was Saul of Tarsus paled in comparison when he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the sky that day. So much so that he'll say in Philippians 3 verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When Paul looked at all of his accomplishments and all of his education and all of his great wisdom and all of his successes in life and all of his, just the fact that he was religious of religious and there's no one in this room that could even touch Paul's religious accomplishments when he considered all of those and then considered the surpassing glory, the worth of knowing Jesus Christ Paul says, I don't count those kind of good or not good. I consider those things rubbish in comparison to the surpassing glory and worth of knowing Jesus Christ. You know, it's like he realized. I mean, you know, I, I used to play rec basketball. Sometimes I use random illustrations in the 9 a.m. just to make sure you're still with me. I played rec basketball for the city, you know. Like, all you have to do to play childhood rec basketball is just sign your name up, and they'll put you on a team. I mean, you don't have to be good. You literally just have to have a name, and they'll just put you on the list, and they'll break you up, and you get to play, and everyone gets to play. And here's the deal. When I, my, I remember nine, when I was, I had a particularly successful season in Colleyville Recreation Basketball. And I remember people saying good things after the game. Great job, Dan. Great job, Dan. Great job, Dan. 
So much so that I got asked to play in a select league afterwards. It's a great year. When I got to the select league, I realized after a couple of short practices and a couple of games that I wasn't, I wasn't comparatively good to those guys. I was just average. I was just okay. And after the games, no one would come up to me and say, good job, Dan. What had happened is the glory of all these other nine-year-old basketball players surpassed the glory of my basketball skill. That's exactly what's happened to Saul of Tarsus. He's saying if just on a purely human level, if you want to talk accomplishments and successes, I will have outglorified everyone. But when I take all of my accomplishments and my successes and I hold them up to the glory of Jesus Christ, all of those things seem like nothing, seem like rubbish in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And so what we see in Paul is we see a genuine love, not for religion, not for doing things, but for the person, Jesus Christ. We see a genuine love for him. So there are wicked people who are inwardly sinful, inwardly wicked, and outwardly wicked. There are those types of people exist in the world that are actively and outwardly and inwardly wicked all around. Then there are Religious people who are outwardly good, who are outwardly decent, who are outwardly upstanding and seem like on the outside, on the surface, that they're good, legitimate people. But inwardly, their hearts are still far from God. There's no love for Jesus in their life. There's no love for the person Jesus. There's just religion. And then there are Jesus people. There are Christians. There are Christ people. People who are not about an organized religion, but are about the person, Jesus Christ. And we see in the apostle that he is not a religious person anymore. He's been converted, get this, from religion to Christianity. Why? Why is Paul so genuinely in love with this person, Jesus Christ? He gives us a huge clue in verse 9. Let's look. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul finally realized that if he were to get up to heaven one day and stand before a just and holy God, and he were to hand that just and holy God his religious resume, Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Benjamin. I have a tribe of Benjamin. I've got royalty in my blood. If you were to hand God Almighty his religious resume, God Almighty were to, would take his accomplishments, his religious resume, and would say, this is kind of funny, but this gets you nowhere. But if he could get up to heaven one day and look at God Almighty, who is more powerful and mighty, who has more power vested to him than anything or anybody, and he were to not hand him his religious resume, 
but we're to hand him the righteous resume, perfectly righteous resume of Jesus Christ, only then would God say, that is what I need. Only then would he be granted access into the presence of God for eternity. See, I think what happened on Act, in that road on Acts, in Acts chapter 9 on his way to Damascus is he realized when he looked up and saw this person in the sky commanding him, King of kings, Lord of lords, sitting up in the sky, calling to him. All of a sudden, Paul realized, that's the kind of righteousness that I need. That's the kind of person that I need to be like. And if I'm not perfectly righteous like he is righteous, then I'll never be righteous enough and good enough on my own to enter into or merit eternity favor from God. So he looks up and goes, that Jesus is what I need to be like, and there's no way I can be like him. None. Even me, Saul of Tarsus, I'm religious, I've memorized the whole Old Testament. Even that, not good enough. And he looks up at Jesus and says, I need to be righteous like him. And the only way I can be righteous like that person, Jesus Christ, is by having faith in that person, Jesus Christ. And by exalting in that person, Jesus Christ. By glorying in that person, Jesus Christ. The only way for me to have his righteousness is to know that I can't have righteousness without him. And that's why it's righteousness that depends on faith. It's a posture that says, I can't on my own, even with my religious resume and all my accomplishments, I can't be righteous on my own, and therefore, I need the righteousness of Christ. And you know what happens? The Bible teaches that when you and I look at ourselves and realize, like Paul, that all the accomplishments that we've done and all the things that we've done, all of our religion, when all of that, all of that matters, we'll take it up to heaven one day and God won't care. He won't care about your religion. So then we realize how sinful we are. We realize how much we need the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that the penalty, the wrath of God that's supposed to go to you and I for our sin, this is the gospel, church. You can't get past this. If you lose awe and appreciation and worship for what I'm about to say, we have missed something at Stonegate. But all the wrath of God, when we believe upon Jesus Christ, when he becomes our prize and our possession, when we count all things as lost compared to knowing him, God says that he removes the wrath from us and takes it and funnels it onto his son, Jesus. Then he takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect righteous resume of Jesus Christ, and then gives it to you so that now God looks at you with the same degree of love and affection that he has towards his own son, Jesus. That's the gospel. We're not religious. We're Christians. This is the, there's one point that we will nail today. It is religion versus Christianity. Religion says, I must do something, but Christianity says, Christ has done something. Religion is summed up in one word, do, and Christianity is summed up in the word, done. Religion is characterized by trying, and Christianity is characterized by trusting. Religion is man hoping to save himself, but Christianity is God saving hopeless man. 
Religion is rules and rituals. And Christianity is real relationship. Religion confuses justification and sanctification. Think about it. Justification is I'm connected to God. I'm legally viewed righteous by God because of the finished work of Christ on my behalf, and that never changes. And therefore, because I'm connected to God, I can now walk with God. I can now become like God because I've got the power of God. I've got God's connect, I'm connected. I can now be sanctified because God's with me, empowering me and enabling me to become like God. That's, that's, that's Christianity. Religion says I've got to do something first to earn God's justification. It confuses the two. gets it backwards. Religion is joyless. You know, religious people and Christianity is joy-filled. Religion is about doing something and Christianity is about knowing someone. Religion is about trusting and boasting in self. Christianity is about trusting and boasting in Christ. So what about you? Are you a religious person or are you a Christian? Are you a person who's about doing or a person who is about trusting? Are you a person who's about working to gain your salvation? Or are you a person who is resting in the finished work of Christ? Let me ask you this, parents or family or anybody. What about your home? Is your home characterized by religion? Or is your home characterized by the person, Jesus Christ? And there's a difference. You know, it's, it's hard to describe, but it's like you know it when you see it. Because you, you walk into the house and you feel it. And you feel, you know, when mom and dad pretend to be perfect. And then they want kids to be perfect. Little moral, perfect, religious people. Let me be very clear. I have four weeks of experience in parenthood. I could raise my son to be a good person, but if he's a good person, religious person, who doesn't know Jesus Christ, that's all in vain. And sometimes I fear that, you know, my world here is student ministry and, you know, young, young. And I feel like sometimes we try to make good moral kids. What we really need are Jesus Christ kids, you know. There's an enormous difference there. At the end of the day, your kid could come to every single activity that we offer, kids ministry, preschool ministry, you know, children's ministry, student ministry, whatever. And they could enjoy it. They could love it. And they could walk out and be religious kids who don't know Jesus. We want Jesus Christ kids, people, adults that not only love Jesus, worship Jesus, but are being discipled into the image of Christ Jesus. And sometimes I fear that we're, the goal, our goal is not religion. It's not good. More. We don't want our kids just to turn out good. We want them to know Christ. That's different. You know, I was talking to a guy. I'll defer to somebody else's parenting experience on this one. 
one of our elder candidates a few months ago, we sat down and he was talking to me about, this was, this was so insightful. I mean, so insightful. He said one of the things that he did when, when he realized that he was kind of having this home that wasn't real Christ-centered, it was just, we go to church, we do this, we do this, we do this. One of the things that he was going to try to do to help bring Jesus into his home, you want to know what he said? This is unbelievable. He said, I started repenting and apologizing frequently and regularly. So that way, kids would realize that daddy's not perfect. And that daddy needs a savior. And that daddy needs Jesus Christ. And that mommy's not perfect. And that you're not perfect. And that nobody's perfect. And that everybody needs Jesus. He said that he began repenting in his home, openly apologizing. He began to see the person and work of Jesus Christ. That kids realize that it's not about doing right things. It's about knowing the right person. I mean, that's ins- that is insightful because that's the difference between a house marked by rules and a house marked by repenting. That's different. Even Christmas, Santa Claus, that's a religious message. He's making a list, checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty or nice. That's if you do good things, you're on the nice list. If you do bad things, you're on the naughty list. That's religion. That's not gospel. The gospel is everyone's on the naughty list. And Jesus is the only person on the nice list. And the only way we can go to the nice list is if the one person comes into the naughty list, makes us nice, and brings us back to the nice list. And I'm not, you know, I'm not the guy that's like, I hate Santa Claus. I'm not that guy. I like Santa Claus. I like the culture of Santa Claus. We took our four-week-old to get pictures with Santa. I like Santa. What a great teaching opportunity to teach the difference between the message of the gospel and the message of Santa. They're different messages. So Paul has a genuine love for Jesus Christ because he has a clear understanding of the gospel. A clear understanding of the gospel. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in the death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's look at verse 12. So that's that's Paul's life in Christ, righteous, righteous before God now. Now verse 12 through 14, Paul's life through Christ is redeemed. We're going to see two giant themes that mark the redeemed life. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, that's a great line right there. That's Paul saying, I've, I've, I don't, I'm not perfect yet. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So two things to close. Number one, The redeemed life is the life that forgets. Now, we don't forget everything. Paul's not saying that you should forget everything. Because the Bible elsewhere says that we should remember things, like the gospel. We should remember being converted and all that Jesus has done for us in the past. What's he talking about here? Paul's talking about anything in your past that would cause you hang-ups, that would prevent you and keep you from present-day pursuing Jesus Christ, a knowing of Jesus. Forget those things. 
So Paul's referring to, in this passage, probably his life prior to Jesus. Paul's life prior to Jesus was persecuting the church. I mean, that's, that's like, you know, not that sin is, le- you know, sin is sin, but when you kill Christians, that's a big time sin. I mean, that's big time. And Paul's saying, I don't, can, I don't let those things in my past keep me from knowing, present day knowing, Jesus Christ. And even we see this really clearly in First Timothy. Let me just read it for you real quick. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. He could just stop there. He could just stop there and feel discouraged and have despair and have, look at all the sins that I've done in the past. How am I ever going to get by them? But no, Paul does not remember his former life that way. He sees his former life through gospel lenses. So he goes on to say, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in my unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So Paul sees his past not as hang-ups that prevent him from pursuing Jesus Christ, but he sees his past as covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. A lot of us, man, we, we get bogged down in what we've done or not done in our failures, in our sins, to the point that it might keep you from running over and over to Jesus Christ. But that's not gospel thinking. Like if you're in here today and you're like, there's things in my past that are preventing me, there's sins that I just can't get over, there's failures that I just can't get over, then you've made Christianity about you, not about Jesus. It's about what you do or don't do. So that when you're bad, you can't go to him. And when you're good, you can go to him. That's not gospel thinking. That's religion. And Paul says, I look at my past. My past doesn't keep me from going to Christ, but my past failures help me see how even greater Christ is. So like even in 2012, you know, we're closing a year out and about to enter into a new year. And I don't know if you're like me, but you probably think, man, there's a lot of things I wish I would do over again in 2012. There's a lot of goals that I didn't get to. There's a lot of things that I didn't do. There's a lot of decisions that I made that weren't good. There's a lot of sins that I did that were, that were not, that created all kinds of trouble. I wish I could go over them, and oh my gosh, I'm so scared of the future. What am I going to do? And Paul would say, see that with gospel lenses, with gospel clarity. All past sins are paid for so that now we can present day run to Christ. And lastly, straining forward to what lies ahead. And Paul has optimistic, hope-filled future because he knows that whatever, whatever season he gets into, whatever sort of things happen in the future, that that's going to be a unique opportunity to know Christ even more. Even in verse 10, he says, even if God brings me through seasons of suffering, this is a mark of a guy who is flourishing in his Christian life. Even if God brings me through suffering, I'll have the unique privilege of sharing in Christ's sufferings so that whatever I am, high or low, good or bad, whatever season comes, I'll at least have a unique opportunity to know Jesus through it. 
So what gives Paul hope in the future is not circumstances. It's not good things. It's knowing Jesus more and more and more. And because of the past work on the cross, we can run to Jesus today. And because Jesus' present, ongoing work in our life, we can look forward to knowing him more and more. And because one day we'll finally go home and we'll be with him in perfect union and fellowship forever, we can strain ahead and strain forward. So let me pray for us. Right now, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and the New Testament teaches that in taking the Lord's Supper, that it's A, a very serious thing, and B, a great opportunity to worship Jesus Christ, because it reminds us, it's a tangible, physical illustration of the gospel. So if you're a Christian in here, if you're a believer in here, I'm going to invite you to do two things. First, I'm going to invite you to pray and examine yourself prior to Lord's Supper. Just examine your heart. And if God reveals any sin in your life, that you can confess and repent of your sin, and then come up to the Lord's table and take the bread and dip it in the juice, and as you chew it, that your mind would reflect upon the broken body of Jesus Christ and the spilt blood of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a believer in here, we would ask you just to take Jesus Christ this morning. If you're not a believer in here, just to take Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for all that you are and all that you've done for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray for our church. God, I pray that we would not be a religious church, but that we would be a Jesus church. That we would not be people marked by our outward moral actions but that we would be marked by a genuine love for the person, Jesus Christ. I pray for those of us in here who do not have a clear understanding of the gospel, that they would have a moment like Paul where they all of the sudden see the glory of Jesus. They see how great he is and how righteous, perfectly righteous he is. And God, that that would reveal in us our own need and our own sin that would stir up trust and faith in you. God, I pray that you would be the grounds for our joy and the grounds for our boasting and the grounds for our exaltation and that we would be a Christ Jesus sort of place. God, we lift you up this morning. in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.